You're listening to The Human Factor from Inc. Magazine. I'm Eric Schoenberg, the CEO of Inc. and Fast Company. 90% of leadership is communication. And 90% of human communication, researchers tell us, is nonverbal body language. But what is your body trying to say to your team when all they can see of it is from the shoulders up? Or when 90% of your messages travel via email or Slack, where an ambiguous phrase, missing word, or God forbid, misplaced comma, can speak volumes of exactly what you don't mean. In a digital world, how do you build trust and get your message across clearly? Well, that's exactly the kind of question that today's guest, Erica Dewan, sought to answer in her fascinating book, Digital Body Language. Erica is a recognized expert on teamwork and collaboration within organizations. She's a consultant and keynote speaker, including at the Fast Company Innovation Festival. And she's a self-described nonverbal communication junkie. Dating back, she says, to her childhood as the daughter of Indian parents in a middle-class white neighborhood outside Pittsburgh. She's also, not surprisingly, given her professional interest, a great storyteller and a crystal clear communicator. You'll see. Erica Dewan, welcome to The Human Fact. I'm so excited to be here, Eric. <laughs> Erica, it's great to have you. Oh, where are you calling in from? I am calling in from Long Island, where my constant life right now is traveling, being in New York and in other cities, but making sure I have my webcam, my ring light, and my computer at all times, because video calls, as we all know, are the norm, not the exception. Uh, that's right. Um, this is the digital body language era. Now, communication is always tough for leaders, but it's especially so when so much of your communication happens through the keyboard or through that uh, digital camera. Um, it's kind of amazing when you think of it, how much of your communication is now done, you know, not by walking up to somebody and talking to them or even talking on the phone, but by digital communication. Have you got some way to quantify that? Well, research shows that roughly 60 to 80% of our face-to-face -face collaborations are our nonverbal body language, pacing, pauses, gestures, tone. But in a digital world, actually, body language hasn't disappeared. It is transformed. Research shows we are receiving anywhere between 100 to 200, on average, emails every day, uh, where we are sending signals and cues. We are on video calls in many industries throughout the entire day. Uh, and, and that has completely changed the new cues and signals that we send to one another. Where is in the past, the head nod, the lean in in a sales conversation, the furrowed brows knowing we should ask someone something gave us the cues of how to read the room. Today, the new cues of reading the room are the choice of communication we use, the exclamation points and emojis, the ways that we design our video meetings for engagement and inclusion. And that's what digital body language is all about. Okay. Um, it's like learning a new language, actually, all this kind of yeah. communication. And you need a, a, a form of translation. You were talking about how the new way of leaning in is exclamation marks or emojis. Uh, the new platform is choosing, you know, what platform you're gonna, you're gonna use. Um, can you walk us through a couple of translations? Like for example, in analog language, um, expressing trust is maybe leaning in, showing interest. What's that translate in digital body language? 
Yeah, so so let's talk about some examples. Let's start with trust. Now, in face-to-face -face settings, trust may have been built through direct eye contact, uh, our palms wide open, perhaps a lean in or a smile in a group conversation. Today, trust can be built through that quick email recap that we send 15 minutes after a video meeting to make sure and clarify that everyone is on the same page. I like to say that's the new virtual handshake or very thoughtfully engaging on that video call, not just being a participant, but maybe sharing in the chat, not just saying I agree, but here's what I think and here's how we can enable this to grow or simply being that person that doesn't respond to the fifth reply all email and instead picks up the phone to clarify a complex issue is a signal of trust in our virtual office. So those are just some examples of how we build trust in the new ways that we work in today. Should we talk about excitement as another example? So in a face-to-face -face setting, when we're excited, we may raise our eyebrows, we may tap our fingers. Today, excitement or even urgency may be seen as sending multiple exclamation points or emojis or even all caps with exclamation points to signal excitement, especially in our emails or other written messages where tone can get lost. It can also be shown through sending messages in different channels, maybe sending an email and then an IM or making a call as well and using multiple mediums to show enthusiasm. And, and last but not least, I think one third one that, uh, that I think is important is when we show confusion or disinterest. So confusion can often be seen by disinterest physically, maybe looking down or not engaging in a meeting or uh, looking at your phone, which can happen on a screen. We can notice that as well. Uh, or having, you know, stern eyes or pursed lips. Now, in a digital setting, confusion can look like not responding at all, sometimes feeling ghosted. And it can also have it be having those multiple question marks in a message or it being in situations where you're not exactly getting what you need because you can't read the cues that someone's confused. And knowing when you're not getting what you need and picking up the phone, I like to say is worth a thousand emails to avoid those confusing situations. There are so many ways to, to be misconstrued. Um, I, I've always told people that um, who've asked me about it that you should never, ever press send when you're angry. Are there other rules about email etiquette that, uh, that you say you could tell people just never do? Well, similar to when we were face to face, if we knew someone was on the verge of tears or incredibly angry, we would react differently to how we respond to them. However, typing up something to them. We have no idea where they're at on the other side. My first rule of thumb is never, as you said earlier, send a message when you're angry or frustrated, especially if you get a passive aggressive message, stay in the place of reason, maybe draft something, uh, but sleep on it and send it the next day. That can often be very helpful. Secondly, ask yourself, would a different medium be better? Would a quick phone call be better than responding to the Slack message or an email? Oftentimes, complex issues need that voice and inflection tone to be able to get to clarity. And last but not least, if you're in a situation where there is potential confusion, really ask yourself, did you give the other person what they needed to do their best work? Oftentimes, you may realize that what was commonplace or clear to you may not be clear on the other side. Um. You know, you mentioned passive aggressive emails. What are the earmarks of those? I, I think people probably send them all the time without realizing it. 
In my research on digital communication, what I found was that oftentimes we may be sending ambiguous messages that for some can feel completely normal phrases they learned in business school, like per my last email or circling back or bumping this to the top of your inbox, but for others can feel passive aggressive, rude or anxiety producing. The problem is we may not know on the other side how the other person is interpreting it. Now, because of this, I always recommend anyone sending messages to make sure you're answering two questions before you write your messages. The first is, who has more or less power here? If I have more power, maybe I'm a senior leader and I'm sending a quick message to someone who's junior or doesn't know me as well, am I being thoughtful and careful in my messages versus uh, sending an all caps message saying, why didn't you finish this question mark, question mark, question mark? Maybe you were just typing fast at an airport, but on the other side, it could feel like shouting. The second question we must always answer is how much do we trust each other? Are we longtime colleagues where good intent will be clear or is this someone we're meeting for the first time? And maybe if there's low trust, err on the side of formality, make sure you are being maniacally clear in your message to avoid potential confusion along the way. But at the end of the day, uh, this the assumption that someone may be passive aggressive can shoot up much more in the virtual workplace than face-to-face -face because we simply don't have those body cues. So most importantly, we need to always assume good intent. Check if our interpretations were correct before responding. Secondly, don't respond or react. Really stay in that place and reason. Know when to pick up the phone or choose a different channel. And lastly, you can, if you get a confusing message that may seem passive aggressive, uh, you know, there's lots of favorites and Eric, I'll have to ask you what yours is. You know, you can choose to respond with empathy and encouragement. If someone says, why didn't you finish this with three question marks that may seem a bit alarming, you could say, you know, the deadline is Tuesday. I'm, I will, you know, I will definitely get it to you by the deadline. Is there anything else you need? That can quickly change the behavior of, of someone's response and they may just be having a bad day. But how about you, Eric? What, what are some of your most common phrases that have felt somewhat ambiguous or potentially passive aggressive? Oh, oh God, Erica, there are so many. I've, I, as I read your book, I, I realized, my God, I, some of my favorite seemingly helpful phrases turn out to be uh, possible to interpret as passive aggressive. I'm uh, you know, a big one for bringing this back up to the top of your inbox. Um, seems helpful, but maybe not. What do you think? I know people that have learned that phrase in business school or learned it from their bosses and they use it with their colleagues. And I think what we have to build is this muscle that what may work in one environment may not always translate in different environments, similar to traditional body language, where if we may use American body language to greet individuals in the United States, that could be actually insulting in Japan. Uh, we have different digital body languages in different parts of teams, companies, organizations, and beyond. I'll give you an example. I know um, one leader at a pharmaceutical company, she worked for a boss who always wrote emails and bullet points. And so she learned to write emails and bullet points. She ended up taking a role at the pharmaceutical company, leading an entire, entire community of nurses. And she found out about three months into her job that the nurses all thought that she was rude and terse because she would always write emails in bullet points. She wouldn't include an emoji or share any color. And a lot of their communication was digital. And this really allowed her to check some of her bias. One of the things we have to do is remember that we are not all the same and to, to not always assume something of someone, but also 
to be thoughtful when there are opportunities to adapt to different environments. Um, well, that uh, rule to always assume good intent is a, a thing that will uh, serve you well in a lot of business settings. Um, are, are there things you should just never say in an email? There are things that we should never say in an email. I think the, the first thing that we should never say is um, something that is, you know, would be much better said on the phone. And I, I think just simply taking a step back and um, asking ourself, uh, ourselves, um, is this something that really requires a complex back and forth discussion that would not be effective in the asynchronicity of email communication. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, during the COVID-19 pandemic, right at the beginning in March or April, there was one employee at a company I worked with that tended to be quite humorous, making jokes in emails about COVID-19. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the CEO at that time was seeing a lot of this email flow and in Slack channels and wanted to respond and say, you know, get a grip. But, but um, you know, he knew that that would not actually be the appropriate way to talk about this. He gave him a quick phone call and said, you know, this type of behavior is not appropriate in this time. And it was much more effective. I'll give you another example. Uh, you know, I know one woman, I shared this story in my book, Digital Body Language, who um, was part of a group of friends at her workplace that was not fond of a woman named Melissa. She was another colleague or employee at the company. And um, there was an announcement months later that Melissa was no longer working at the company. And it was sent out to a larger group and that someone else would be taking her role. And this woman was so excited about that, she decided to forward an email to her girlfriend saying, uh, you know, this is so exciting or something, you know, that didn't actually seem very good. She ended up replying all to the entire 300 person company instead of her few friends, uh, <laughs> let alone she ended up getting fired. And we have to remember that there are things that can get forwarded, screenshotted uh, in many ways. And so the general rule of thumb is, Think before you type. Your words carry and matter. We don't walk the talk. We don't talk the talk. We write the talk. And so the more that we can understand that and build a sensitivity to our words, the better we'll lead our teams, our workplaces, and even our family lives. Um, well, that sounds really good advice. There's a question that came in from Jesse Shelton um, about big data. Are there instances where big data has affected digital communications for good or for ill? I think that there are different arms of the spectrum when it comes to how we're using big data in, in ways that will enable more authenticity and engagement and, and ways that can often reduce authenticity. One of the things that is exciting is a lot of the research that's being done by different companies, Cisco is one of them, that's looking at how digital communication behaviors can improve sales or erode sales, simple things or ways of working and writing and communication. There's apps, one of them is called Crystal Nose that will decode your digital communication style. I highly recommend checking it out, it's free. Uh, and you can plug it into your Gmail to understand what is someone else's digital communication style and how is it different from your own just by pulling in data from around the world of how people write their social media posts and, and, uh, and, and blogs and other channels. But I think um, there's two parts to this coin. One is I think big data can allow us to 
become closer, more intimate in understanding individual styles of, of those around us. But in sensitive moments, I think it can cause a lot of alarm or, um, or actually fall and crash on its head without human ingenuity combined with it. And I'll give an example. I re- you may remember a few years ago, Uber, the, com- the company that we all know quite well, um, dur- there was a terrorist attack in Australia. And during this terrorist attack in Sydney, what happened was many people were rushing to get home. This was a few years ago. And during that time, the Uber prices shot up in value. They were like 100x their normal price. So no one could, you know, get a quick ride home because there was such a surge that Uber didn't have the sensitivity and that human ingenuity to be thoughtful of the fact that People are in a crisis situation. We shouldn't shoot up the prices a hundred times it norm- what it normally would be. And that's an example of where big data can actually um, not be as thoughtful and enabling us all to move forward. And if we apply that example to just even digital communication, I think we'll see more apps and tools like Crystal Knows and others that will allow us to decode individuals' digital styles and better connect with them. But I think what we have to do is really, ooh, sorry about that, combine there we go. Combine the lessons of, of ingenuity with big data to really provide the best results. All right. That's that's great. Great answer, Erica. Uh, big data with a human touch. Um, you talked about understanding other people's communication styles and also communication styles across cultures. In your book, you point out that there are vast differences in communication styles across genders. Can you talk about how men and women differ in their digital body language? Yeah. Well, 30 years ago, many of you may be familiar with Deborah Tannen's work. Uh, she wrote a book called You Just Don't Understand around the differences between men and women. And I really sought out to think about what are those differences, not just in traditional body language, but digital body language. And what I found was similar to traditional gender biases in traditional body language, like up talking and voice pitch. There are digital gender biases, uh, but they do look a bit different. On one end, there is a perception of a masculine tone of digital body language. And on the other end, there is a perception of a feminine tone. A masculine tone is much more direct to the point, assertive language. Yes, obviously, a definitely really preference uh, to short bullet pointed messages and just as comfortable in digital messages as in face to face. A more feminine tone may tend to use emojis, exclamations, prefer video meetings versus uh, other written digital forms of messages. And, and what's really important here is to remember that there are these different styles. I know women that can have a masculine tone, men that can have a feminine tone, but biases do exist. In fact, one study by linguist showed that when younger women uses multiple emojis in a workplace email compared to a man at any rank level, the woman is more likely to be seen as incompetent. The man is more likely to be seen as casual or friendly. And I'm a big fan of breaking those biases, but actually, um, uh, you know, actually recognizing them. Another example is when a woman uses multiple exclamation points compared to a man, a woman is more likely to be interpreted as showing excitement, while the man is more likely to be interpreted as showing urgency. And this is just an example to show that in many ways, these cues do look different. The more that we can understand these differences, the more we can also break a lot of these biases as well. And, and again, check them so that we can create more inclusion in the digital workplace that we're in today. 
You talk a lot about um, being careful in your communications. Double check uh, your emails before you press send, your Slack, your Slack posts, um, and make sure that you're understood. And also make sure that you're aware of, as you said, what's the the power and trust um, relationship between you and the, and the recipient of your communication. Should men and women be careful in that respect? How should men, for example, change their communication style if they know their recipients are, are members of both genders or a woman um, and vice versa? I, what I found was that, uh, you know, in terms of being careful, communicating carefully matters more than ever. And, and I found that it's less about specifically one a, a different gender or generation or culture and more about building a skill set of certain norms that will enable us to be inclusive regardless of differences and i call i call these norms the four laws of digital body language the first law is what i call valuing others visibly and being thoughtful that valuing others may look different in different circumstances. When you're running a video meeting, valuing others um, may be being thoughtful and using the chat tools. So you hear from introverts just as much as extroverts. Introverts may be more thoughtful in the chat. They think better in writing before speaking. I know one leader who always sends agendas 48 hours before her meetings and then at the with questions. And then at the beginning of the meeting, she has everyone share their answers in the chat. She's told me she's heard more from her extrovert, from her introverts in the last 18 months than ever in the office because they were always fighting for airtime. And then she calls on people with the most different or diverse perspectives during the meeting based on who shared in the chat, which is allowing her to avoid groupthink and bias as well. The second norm is just to communicate carefully, to always check and not assume someone will get what you mean, but actually to really create norms around the who, what, when in every message. I know a team that has set a norm. Every email starts with what I need from you. They call it an acronym, which means WINFI. Um, or it has response time expectations. 4H means I need this in four hours. 2D means I need this in two days. And the third norm is what I call collaborate confidently, which is all about really saying what you'll do and doing what you'll say, not assuming, but really creating a space for all stakeholders to be included. I'll give you an example. I know one leader who runs a global team. She's based in New York and she has team members in London, Sydney, Australia, and Buenos Aires, Argentina. She found that her colleague in Buenos Aires was not engaging on Zoom calls. At first she thought he was multitasking, then she thought maybe he wasn't interested. Finally, she said, I need to collaborate confidently and instead check in with him more frequently. She sent him an, a direct IM and he wrote, I'm having such a hard time translating three different English accents when English is not my native language, an American, mm -hmm. British, and Australian accent at the exact same time. This really allowed her to realize the importance of frequency and consistency of check-ins and to remember that the more we assume good intent and check our bias, the more inclusive our workplaces will be regardless of differences. Great. Um, well, those are those are terrific rules. Also, another one that I was quite taken by in the book is trust fully. Correct. Yeah. Tell us about that. Ab absolutely, I call it trust totally. Now, let's trust be totally. honest. Thank you. Um, with 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 the loss of the traditional visual cues that made up so much of the ways that we communicate, how do we build that trust? no matter the distance. And um, you know, you asked me at the beginning of this conversation, how do we quantify this? How do we quantify communication? I ran a, a study this past year that found that on average, employees are wasting up to four hours per week 
on poor, unclear, or confusing digital communication mm -hmm. from their coworkers. So if we really quantify the impact on that, that's up to 10% of, of working time per week that is lost because of our loss of nonverbal cues. And the confusion that has come out of that is also um, what has come, which is our overuse of certain tools. We tend to send five emails for what could have been a 10 minute phone conversation um, or are using and adding more tools instead of making sure if we add Slack, we're not emailing about the same five things. And so what is trust today? Trust is really about en enabling all the three capabilities I shared earlier. It's about creating the mechanisms where every team feels valued visibly. That could be norms such as appreciation awards, having a an icebreaker where everyone shares a win of the week, a challenge of the week at the beginning of meetings to value them visibly and allow them to engage. Research shows if you get everyone engaged in the first 5% of the meeting, they'll be much more likely to engage for the remaining 95% of the meeting. Secondly, it's about truly communicating effectively, giving people what they need to do their best work. I'll give you an example. If we say, uh, I need this report by the end of the week, but then if we make our team rework it for two months because we were hasty, not thoughtful, that can erode trust. And last but not least, it's giving everyone a space and a voice. And what I think is exciting is that through our virtual connection, we can enable anyone anywhere to be a part of the conversation. I'll never forget pre-pandemic, I was in a conference call where three of us were remote, three people were in the office. It wasn't until the 26th minute of a 30 minute meeting that someone in the office said, does anyone on the phone have something to share? We had been excluded mm -hmm. the entire time. Trust is about maximizing the collective expertise of anyone anywhere, and that's what we can do through the lessons of our digital shift as we move back to a hybrid office. Well, a hybrid office seems to be in the future for an awful lot of companies, if not you know, 90% of them, perhaps. Um, what is the etiquette in a meeting in which half the people are present physically and half the people are remote? What's the best way to make sure that those people who are remote get heard? I've been working with many teams right now to iron out the explicit norms for the hybrid office. And I have four tips that I think are really universal. The first one is when you're running hybrid meetings, always have a live host and a remote host and have them co-host the meeting and have the remote host lead the first half of the agenda. This can remove proximity bias, create that remote member sensitivity and create a shared understanding of who's really in the room. The second tip is keep the use of the virtual chat tool. It's been an amazing tool to avoid turn taking in group discussions to allow everyone to contribute. Maybe there are moments where everyone will actually use the chat or virtual attendees will share in the chat on a screen share. The third tip, is to make sure your office is set up where there are cameras in the room so remote attendees can actually read the body language of those in the room, not just those that are remote attendees. You don't want the camera in the room just looking at the wall. And then last but not least, I highly recommend the use, especially if you have a global team, the use of closed captioning to make sure that everyone can, can grasp what was discussed, especially those with accents or in different parts of the world. It can be very effective. And one question quick tip, um, final quick tip I'll share. I know I shared four, but I'm going to do a fifth bonus is if you're running breakout groups, and maybe it's a large offsite that's hybrid, 
actually have mixed remote and in-person breakout groups. You can have different cameras in the room. What this will make sure to do is to avoid just the, the, the drive-by chats happening in the room and then excluding remote attendees and actually encouraging that mixed discussion, which can, again, increase the cognitive intelligence from the, from the broader meeting. Um, those are great tips, Erica. I had not thought of uh, a remote and a local co-host. Co how, how does that work exactly? So think about it as, you know, in, in, in a meeting, having two hosts, having someone that, that's the lead host, kind of like a, a TV show, uh, two hosts, uh, you know, someone that's in the room and someone that's on the screen. And maybe mm -hmm. just setting some norms um, that the mm -hmm. remote hosts maybe if I'm remote dialing into ink with you, Eric, I lead the first half of the agenda and there's always a clear agenda. And then you lead the second half. And, and that's a great way to just create a space to remove that sensitivity of just who's in the room and reduce our visual bias and proximity bias. That's great. That's a great practical tip. Um, there's a question uh, from um, uh, Manoj uh, that came in uh, over the chat and it's about bullying and whether in the digital world, um, cyberbullying is a lot more common than physical bullying is and how you manage uh, to squelch that as a leader. Yeah, yeah. There's a study called the online disinhibition effect, which shows that we are, uh, we are more comfortable being terse or rude or bully others behind a screen because technology can create masks than we would be face-to-face -to, -face to the same person. And that has caused a rise of online bullying, whether it's teenagers in schools or even in the workplace, um, where if someone writes, you know, thank you for some Thank you can be read differently. Uh, you know, please finish this work product by t by midnight. Thank you. That can feel different than you know a thank you. Uh, I really appreciate how much work you did here. Now, when it comes to some of this online bullying, I think it's best if it stops swiftly, and that's really the job of leaders to create that space to avoid a lot of this miscommunication and really stopping it when it happens. Uh, I I I'd say. If you are someone that is seeing some of this bullying happening, uh, online bullying happening in the, your workplace, remember um, your power in this situation, pick up the phone, don't respond to passive aggressive messages and change the dialogue, um, change it to a different medium. Secondly, this is a moment, we've all been 18 months into the pandemic where you can do a bit of a post-mortem of the last 18 months. Set some norms with your teams. What have been the top digital communication challenges and the top digital communication successes? And set some norms moving forward. I've heard teams that said, you know, I get so anxious when you know, you send an all caps message and that other colleague has no idea what they're doing. They just often used all caps in a certain way. And so Actually, having discussions around digital communication behaviors can alleviate um, what may seem as bullying and is actually just a difference in style. And last but not least, um, you know, if if things continue or fester, it's really the job of leaders um, to cut it out and and make sure it's it's addressed appropriately. Because at the end of the day, it can happen, frankly, more than I would have hoped in a digital setting. But it can also be forwarded and screenshotted and addressed more quickly as well versus a physical office. Um, that's good, that's good advice, Erica. All right, uh, let's go down to the moment we've all been waiting for, emojis. Give us the 60 second review of emojis. When to use them, which ones to use, which to avoid, 
uh, and how to make all of us sort of emoji black belt users. Emoji black belt users. Well, first of all, what are emojis? They're like the new facial expressions when we can't show our real fright face. Happy, sad, excited, grateful. You can show all of this through the power of, a, of a, an emoji. But the general rule of thumb is think before you emoji. Ask yourself the two questions I shared earlier. Who has more or less power? And secondly, how much do we trust each other? If you have more power, actually use the power of emojis to build intimacy and connection with those. Um, when you're sending a quick email, but you want to show good intent or a sense of gratitude. If you have less power, maybe err on the side of formality unless there is high trust. If there's high trust here, it's great regardless to, to use emojis if there's low trust. Be careful. Uh, secondly, when it comes to um, using emojis, be thoughtful about the differences across age, gender, and culture. Uh, in fact, one quick tip is the thumbs up emoji in Western nations means approval. In uh, certain nations like uh, Nigeria and Afghanistan, it's an offensive emoji. It means to sit on it. So be careful of even differences around the world. Uh, and last but not least, in terms of which emojis to use, I'll be honest, this answer is different for everyone, um, but the general rule is the smiley emoji and in Western nations, the thumbs up emoji are quite popular, but when you're in high trust situations, don't hesitate to be creative with the thousands of emojis out there. However, stay away from the purple eggplant emoji. If you're in Western nations, it can uh, tend to mean something much more vulgar and offensive than just an eggplant. Okay, good. Um... Finally, um, you know, a really important choice, maybe the fundamental choice you make uh, in it, it carries a lot of weight with um, with the communication is the platform you choose. So when is text uh, more appropriate than email, more appropriate than a phone call? Sort of how do you decide which platform to use? There are three factors you should always use to decide which channel to use and to set norms with your colleagues. The first factor is complexity. If it's high complex, has nuance, brainstorming, knowing when to have that video call or hybrid meeting is very important versus sending an IM where something's so complex and can actually make things more difficult because someone on the receiving end doesn't know how to respond, needs time to discuss it. Secondly, urgency. Do you need it in five minutes or five days? Every channel has an implied different response time. Text is faster than email. email. Email is faster than scheduling a video meeting or a hybrid meeting. And knowing the norms around it is important. The third factor is familiarity. Is this someone you've worked with for five days or five years? This can also apply a difference in, in channels. You may text someone you know, you've know you known for a long time. You may be working with someone's assistant to get on their calendar for someone that you've just met. One thing that's important is to not just adhere to someone's style, um, but set norms for your team around what will best serve the work. So you may set some rules. Uh, you know, we email for a direct work product requests, but we always have a clear subject line of what you need from the other person with the response time. We may use Slack to have group discussions about the work. Uh, and we only IM, um, you know, when it's a when it's a different topic for a one-off person. Setting some norms around when we add tools uh, and making sure that if we add a new tool, it's replacing an existing tool is incredibly important to avoid collaboration overload in these times. All right, so if you're gonna bring in Slack, dial down the email or at least make clear when email is appropriate and Slack is preferred. Yeah, set a rule. No more email about these five topics. Otherwise, mm -hmm. we'll create a lot more confusion than we'd like.
All right. And finally, uh, one more final bonus question, if you don't mind, Erica. Crossing the generational divide. Uh, how do we make sure that uh, you know uh, baby boomers and millennials can uh, understand each other's digital body language? Yeah, well, we we have seen just like we've discussed gender and culture, we are not all the same. And also across generations, we have different styles. What I've found is that, you know, not all millennials are the same. Not all baby boomers are all the same. However, there are those that tend to be more digital body language natives and those that are who I call the digital body language adapters. Digital natives are those that are often thriving in virtual first communication over physical communication. They love text IM, chat tools. They hate voicemails. They hate phone calls out of the blue. They really prefer and thrive in these mediums. Digital adapters can't wait to get back to the office. They prefer phone calls, video meetings. Um, they tend to have longer messages. I, I know digital natives that will send a thoughtful email to an adapter saying, can you answer this email? And the adapter will say, let's get on a call to discuss. And the native will be so annoyed. Why, do, why are you wasting my time on a call? Um, and the adapter will say, why can't you just pick up the phone and talk about it versus sending another email? And, and so I think what's important is to remember that we have to get comfortable being uncomfortable uh, as leaders, checking our bias around what will best serve us. And also uh, setting some norms with our teams is important. And I'll, I'll close with one final example. I know one leader, Brad, who um, runs a big team. He has two direct reports, Dave and Allie, and they use Slack. And when he looks at, at Allie's Slack channel with her team, it's beautiful. Bullet points, bold and underlined headings. He knows exactly what's going on. When he looks at Dave's team's Slack channel, it's confusing. GIFs, memes, emojis. And he was really worried if they were doing any work. But then he realized that the output of both of them was the same. Allie was a Gen Xer, uh, Dave was a uh, millennial. And if he were to make Dave more like Allie, he would actually be reducing the authenticity of that team. And so getting comfortable being uncomfortable and also asking for help from our natives or our, our adapters can actually enable us all to bridge that communication gap at work. All right. All right, Erica, let's leave it there. I'm sending you a smiley face and a thumbs up. As long smiley as you're not face. Idea, uh... <laughs> Thank you so much, Erica Dewan. That's all for this episode of The Human Factor. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen so you don't miss the next episode. The Human Factor is produced by Joshua Christensen with help from Blake Odom. 